This week's episode is brought to you by Dell Technologies. Dell Technologies is committed to helping students develop the knowledge, skills, and attributes they need to succeed in an increasingly digital world and global society. As a top provider of technology and services for schools, Dell listens to and works with students, educators, parents, and community members to deliver innovative technology and services that give them the power to do more in and out of the classroom. Learn more about Dell in education at www.delltechnologies.com slash k12. That's www.delltechnologies.com slash k12. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and the managing editor here at Ed Surge. If you ask middle school and high school students these days the most important skills that they're learning, they're likely to name something that they picked up on their own outside of normal school hours. That's according to Julie Evans, CEO of the nonprofit Project Tomorrow. She's been doing focus groups with these students for years. This is before and during the pandemic. And her group has been conducting surveys of these students every year about their learning. Julie Evans says that so many of the students she's talked to, their eyes just light up when you ask them about what they're learning on their own. Some say they're upping their Photoshop skills so they can raise their Instagram game, or they're trying to make their videos better for a personal YouTube channel, or for others, maybe a mention in class about the horrors of medical care during the Civil War sparked them to go down a rabbit hole of internet research to learn about what soldiers of that period really went through. And we're not just talking about a few super precocious kids that are digging into self-directed study, what Evans calls free-range learning. Her organization's survey research has found that about two-thirds of middle and high school students say they're doing this kind of self-study outside of school, thanks to online tools. And the trend holds across all kinds of demographic groups of race and class. Evans lays out her research in a new book. It's due out this fall. It's called Free Agent Learning, Leveraging Students' Self-Directed Learning to Transform K-12 Education. This trend of free agent learners could have a huge impact on education at the K-12 and college level, Evans argues. For one thing, it poses a challenge to teachers that they should do more to tap into this intrinsic motivation of students, suggesting that students can learn much more if they're excited about what they're doing. But it's also a challenge to the way many teachers view their role. In other words, maybe the best teachers are those guiding a student's self-study rather than ones in the front with all the answers. I sat down with Evans last week after a talk she gave at the ISTE Live at Tech Conference in New Orleans. I started by asking why she calls these students free agent learners and how she defines that term. So free agent learners, and it's a term that I created to describe these students, are students that are utilizing technology outside of school to self-direct their own learning around areas of intellectual curiosity, passions, things that they want to know more about, skills they want to develop. But it's not teacher-sponsored. This isn't part of school. This isn't part of an assignment. This is really coming from their own intrinsic desire to learn more about something 
it's not even extra credit. It's not even extra credit. There's no piece of this that's going to, you know, add up to a GPA score or get them an honor at graduation. This is really the passion of learning at its purest sense. And it's all technology enabled because the students have the opportunity, whether it's through a smartphone in their pocket or access to some type of digital learning device, to access all of these information and knowledge resources. Hmm. And thus they're driving their own educational destiny. You know, for the students today, learning is actually a 24-7 enterprise. Sometimes from an education standpoint, we still are confined in our mind to think about learning happens from 8.30 to 3, Monday through Friday. And that's actually not true. And the students understand that. Maybe the teachers and the principals and even the parents still think that's true. But the kids have moved way beyond that. And for many of them, they say that their best learning experiences are actually happening outside of school, where they're in control of the learning process. And it's around areas that have contextual meaning for them. I'm curious, like, how you even got on to looking into this as a phenomenon. You know, what is it that drew you to this in the first place? So it's a really interesting story. So Project Tomorrow has always done research about how technology has been used, whether that was internet connectivity, the use of mobile devices, an online curriculum, uh, different types of digital games. We do lots of research through our Speak Up Research Project, which every year collects feedback from students as well as teachers, parents, and administrators about the state of the use of technology and what people's aspirations are. Uh, Way back in 2003, though, I was sitting in a conference. Uh, It wasn't the ISTE conference, but it was a different education conference. And uh, we had been doing the research, and we had been working with schools, and I'd been interviewing students and had been in classrooms observing things. But at this conference, there was a panel of adults up on the dais that were talking about what kids wanted in terms of technology use. And I got up and walked out because I felt that they had no sense of reality as to what kids really wanted and what kids were really doing with technology. It was all through the lens of an adult that was just learning how to use technology, and they were transferring that to kids. But it was, it was wrong. It was the wrong translation. So I uh, got up and walked out and said, I have got to be able to better understand, even within our projects and our research, what kids are doing with technology. So I went and did a series of focus groups around the country. I went to the Mississippi Delta. I went to the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. I went to Detroit. I went to Oakland, California, and Santa Ana, California, and sat down with groups of students and asked them both about what they were doing in school with technology as well as what they were doing outside of school. What age are these students? They were all middle school and high school students from all sorts of different backgrounds, but all those communities are uh, under-resourced in many different ways. And it was absolutely fascinating because the kids would give me sort of the pat answers that we would expect about how technology was being used and how they wish their teachers used technology more effectively and their teachers needed more training. Um, And they were somewhat subdued in that part of the conversation. When I started asking them, though, about what they were doing outside of school with the tools that they have, their eyes lit up and they got really animated about the value of the learning when they were in charge. 
it was at that moment I realized there was something else happening here that people weren't paying attention to. They weren't paying attention to what students were actually using these digital tools for. And maybe it was just a simple cell phone. Maybe it was just someone's old uh, banged up laptop that had been handed down in the family. But these kids were doing really interesting and to them very important learning. And it comes back to, you know, I always think about Daniel Pink talking about curiosity and motivation. These kids are all naturally curious. Sometimes in our school-based learning, we're not leveraging that to really help them in terms of their motivation for getting a good education. What were, you, intrinsic motivation is the abstract way of saying they're just like, because they want to do it. But what were some of the reasons they even wanted to do the things they were doing, right? Like, how did they find out about these tools? And why were they, what was in it for them? Did you get a sense? Yeah, so actually from the research, and all the book is really about the research that I've been doing for all these years about these free agent learners. Um, in looking at both the quantitative results, which tells me what tools they were using, and then their qualitative results, because I asked them the question of what are you doing in terms of learning outside of school, I identified four different motivations that drive kids to do the self-directed learning. The first one is uh, self-remediation, where the kids don't feel like they're doing well enough in school and they want to do better. So they're struggling in algebra, so maybe they go and find a Khan Academy video and they watch it over and over again so that they themselves feel more proficient. Another example is kids are, and sometimes English teachers are surprised with this, uh, really want to learn how to write well. They really feel that communications is really important. They wish their English teachers assigned more writing and gave them better feedback. So kids are going out and they're uh, uploading writings, creative writings, uh, essays, to get feedback from other people to improve their writing skills. And they're doing that on their own. Uh, There's several different forums that are out there that will take student-produced work and then uh, crowdsource feedback as to whether or not it's grammatically correct, if that is a good way to do that writing, you should change this to being your entry sentence, you need to have a better conclusion here, all these type of things. So the self-remediation is the first one. That one's really interesting. Uh, The second one is about skill development. So the students feel that they need to learn certain skills to be successful in the future. So they are familiar with college and career-ready skills or workplace skills. They're familiar with, with all of those. But they also feel like there's other skills that they need to develop. So lots of kids are really interested in, for example, learning about Photoshop. They think it'd be really important for them to have those sort of design skills. There's a number of kids that I've talked to that also said that with the predominance of videos in society today and and YouTube in particular, how to edit a video is something that's really important. How to create a video, how to create different thumbnails to be able to promote those. They think that's really important. So they go off and they develop these skills outside of school. Or maybe it's something like a curiosity. That's the third one, is a curiosity about something in the world. Those curiosities can actually start in school. So the example I usually give is in a Civil War class, a class about the Civil War. Maybe that's American history in high school. Maybe that's eighth grade in middle school. 
there might be a conversation about how uh, medical procedures, on particularly uh, trauma surgery, changed a lot because of the Civil War, because of the horrors of the Civil War. But the class isn't spending hours on that. But I had several students that said to me they were fascinated by that and wanted to learn more. So it may be the kernel of that curiosity starts in school or it starts somewhere else. It starts on a field trip. It starts on a visit to a museum. It may start with something that their parents mentioned or they saw on the news. And then the kids go down that rabbit hole of looking for resources. They may look for online sites. They may look for discussion boards. They may look for websites to take a look at, other videos, even social media can be a source. And it's all, again, self-directed around interest. The fourth area that students say is an area that drives their self-directed learning is around college and career preparation. Now, there's lots of things that help students supposedly in high school think about different careers. Guidance counselors don't do that as much anymore as they used to. So kids are kind of left out on their own. Like, maybe I might be interested in forensic science. Maybe I might be interested in becoming a college professor. Or maybe I might be interested in becoming a professional fisherman. What is that job like? What do I need to do to be prepared for that? Or maybe I've heard big things about the Ivy League colleges. How do I get into one of those schools? Or is it better for me to start off at a community college and then transfer? All of those questions are questions that kids have told me that they've been doing research on their own. And in some cases, some of that research then points them to developing some skills that put them on that career path and something that they can do, once again, on their own, enabled and empowered by technology to have those resources at their fingertips. I believe you even have some some survey data about how common this is, because I think it seems like the maybe you could hear maybe people out there listening might be like, oh, well, there are precocious kids. There have always been some of these outliers that would do this. But that's not what you're talking about with your sense of this, right? No, not at all. And in fact, uh, people do have those assumptions. They either make the assumptions of these must be really tech-savvy kids, or these must be wealthy, affluent families where the kids are coming from, or maybe they're in communities that support this type of, uh, of an activity. That's not what we're seeing. We actually see great universality of these experiences. Overwhelmingly, it's about two-thirds of students, that middle school and high school students, that have told us for years of looking at this data that they are regularly self-directing learning outside of school using some of these digital tools. Now, again, that might be researching a video. It might be going to some of these online writing sites. It might be um, looking up information on a website. It could be asking Alexa, tell me about volcanoes. You know, it's all part of the fact that they're driving that learning process. But we're seeing that, in fact, even when we break it down, there's some very slight differences by gender, maybe slight differences by community type, but nothing that's statistically significant. Nothing that would lead us to say this is only a niche activity for a couple of kids. In fact, universally, when I do focus groups, which I do a lot of them, and panel discussions with kids, the kids, once again, just just like those original kids at my focus groups that I did way back in 2003, 
they get all lit up about when I ask them to talk about what they're learning on their own. I had a panel discussion I did for the National School Boards Association last January where this one young man said that he's always been fascinated by flight, by aviation, and he wants to get his FAA license, and he wants to be an aeronautical engineer. So he's been doing research for years on his own about aviation, about the history of aviation, about what's involved with the regulation of the aviation industry. All of that is self-directed learning. There, is nothing, there isn't a high school class or even a teacher or a mentor, but this was his passion. And he felt it was such, important, such an important learning process for him. The other thing that's fascinating to me is that when we ask kids about the skills that you are learning in school versus the skills that you are learning outside of school, overwhelmingly a larger percentage of middle and high school students say the most important skills they're learning for their future are the ones they're learning on their own outside of school. And that could be all the things you talked about, like whether it's Photoshop or whatever they're interested in, that those skills that they are no class, but they they learn them. That's right. Learning it on their own. And that's the, the secret sauce here is, again, that intrinsic motivation. But it's also about the purposeful use of the technology. Now, again, since Project Tomorrow and our Speak Up Research Project has been doing this research for so many years, we know that for many educators, their first thoughts when they think about putting technology in the hands of their students or bringing it into the classroom is that this will help engage students in learning. It will help motivate them to learn. The kids blow that off. They think about technology as a utility. It's a way to get from A to B to learn X, Y, and Z. When we actually ask kids about the benefits of using technology for learning, engagement, increased engagement, increased motivation doesn't even hit their top 10, yet it continues to be up at the top for educators on the motivation of using technology. That mismatch around the use of technology and around the valuation of out-of-school independent learning is creating this disconnect where students are looking at it and they have for a while looked at their in-school learning experience and says, say to themselves, this doesn't look like anything that I'm doing outside of school and I believe my richer experience is outside of school. After the break, what educators and schools should do differently now that so many students are doing self-directed learning on their own. Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Dell Technologies. As part of their commitment to transforming lives, Dell Technologies has partnered with ISTE to develop resources to advance digital literacy skills. Head to getdigitalskills.org to begin your digital literacy journey. Educators can dive deeper by completing a free online digital literacy in the classroom course. Dell can help you prepare your students to enter the world of work with the digital literacy they need to succeed. Visit getdigitalskills.org to get started today. Now back to the episode. What else do you think educators should take away from this insight in this research? 
you know, what is there something that you think educators should do differently once they realize this? I think there is tons of potential to first understand what students are doing outside of school, particularly using technology, but most notably around their self-directed learning as an asset that teachers, principals, district administrators, superintendents can use to think about how to improve the learning experience for all students. So if we have over two-thirds of students that tell us they're having a rich learning experience outside of school, that's an asset that we should be tapping into as education leaders to understand how do we incorporate that into our school day? Are there pieces of this we can bring in? So I, I, in the book, in our chapter 10, talk about 10 things that classroom teachers can do, principals can do, district administrators can do. And it starts with simple stuff. It starts with, for example, recognizing, respecting, and honoring that, in fact, learning does not happen just between 8 and 3, that students have a rich learning life outside of school. So I'm impressed with the couple of teachers that I've already talked to that say that based on um, my theory around these free agent learners and what I've shared with them about the research, they've started asking their students, what are you learning outside of school? Just as an open-ended question. And the kids are confused by it because they're so used to their teachers talking to them only about in school that they're like, oh, do you mean my homework? Do you want me to tell you about what I did with my homework? And the teachers are like, no, outside of homework, what are you learning? And then again, they see the lights go on and the kids start talking about all these different things that they're doing. So even just understanding that kids are learning outside of school, that it isn't all just fun and games. It isn't just playing games for the sense of playing games, but maybe it's playing these online games to learn skills, to learn collaboration in a multiplayer environment. It isn't just about watching cat videos and thinking they're funny. Maybe it's actually about learning math or learning the latest skateboard tricks because that student wants to become some type of a professional skateboarder. That's still learning. This is all good learning. And so I really think that starting with that place, there's so much that this could be used as an asset to not only make sure that all students are having the very best comprehensive learning experience, but also from an equity standpoint. You know, so much that we've been talking about, particularly since the pandemic, has been the need to make sure that all students have access to technology outside of school. And it's been basically in the service of homework or maybe students being able to look up what their grade is or next Monday is that math test. I better make sure I'm studying over the weekend. But we're forgetting about the fact or maybe not acknowledging the fact that since students have the opportunity to self-direct learning and they're developing all those great lifelong learning skills, that this conversation around digital equity is also important to make sure that all of our students have access to these tools so that they can become self-directed learners also. So that they can learn the skills that they find most important that, that are not being taught. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really interesting, you know, um, so much of what's happened 
in our school-based world is thinking about, well, kids need to learn all of these subjects, and those having proficiency in those subjects gets them into college. And then college gets them into a successful career, potentially, uh, economic self-sufficiency. And I'm struck by the fact, and I think this was um, a couple of years ago, that Apple said that they were actually deliberately not hiring people that had college degrees because they wanted that spark of innovation, that spark of creativity. The kids are on to that. They're really much more focused in on skills and developing skills, and they believe that because in many ways their schools are not helping them develop the skills that they need, that they have to do it on their own. That's something that I think our schools could do a better job of addressing and recognizing also. Yeah, I was, I was thinking as I hear this, is there a little bit of a, especially as broad as you define some of the self-directed learning, um, having kids always done this, they just, even before technology, to have a hobby, it, it, what's, what's different because of the tech? What's different is really an equity play, I think. So I think about the students that told me in that very poor community that I visited in the Mississippi Delta, that they didn't have access to technology at home, but that they knew where they could get access to technology because they wanted to be able to have access to resources that were beyond the limitations of their community. And I think back, and this is maybe an analogy that resonates with some folks. You know, back in the day, if you wanted to learn something before technology, you probably went to the library, maybe the local public library. You'd go and you'd see if there was a book on that topic, whatever it might be. Um, Maybe you were interested in the rainforest in the Amazon. You might ask the librarian. You might ask the librarian. Or maybe even go to a reference uh, (laughs) place to look up what the Dewey Decimal code would be to go find that book. Yes. Yes, many of us have done that. Um, And then you would go and you'd say, maybe the book was there and maybe the book wasn't there. Or maybe the library didn't have that book. Or maybe they didn't have any resources on that. And so that, in many cases, may have been the end of that learning experience because you didn't have access to physical resources. Or someone had checked the book out and you had to wait two weeks. And then you could go back and go, okay, I'm back for the book. Or even if you were able to check it out, you had it for two weeks. This is part of the conversation around the technology conversation that maybe we're not having enough of this type of uh, discourse on this, which is that it opens up the opportunity for everyone to be a learner and to have access to all sorts of information that maybe before was limited. Now, if you were in an affluent family back in the day, you had encyclopedias, you could look stuff up, or maybe you had the opportunity to go to a well-funded library. But in a lot of the communities that I visited around the country, that still is not the case. And so the internet then has always been thought about as this equalizer. We could level the playing field between the haves and the have-nots. I don't know that we've always actuated that, in the very best way, particularly in terms of using technology in the classroom. But here, the students are doing it themselves. They're not waiting for someone to come along and say, okay, we're going to be a one-to-one school now, (laughs) and you're going to have access to all of these online resources. In fact, they circumvented that. They, you know, 
jump the frog on that in terms of doing it themselves. And that's, that's the difference. The technology has opened the door for these students, whether they are in that small little town in the Mississippi Delta, along the Rio Grande Valley, in downtown Detroit, in Oakland, California, they have just as much access to resources and knowledge and experts and information and opportunities for learning as kids that were in more more well-funded or affluent communities. I love that part of the story. That gives me goosebumps to think that kids have that. But even way back in 2003, when I did those first focus groups, the kids themselves said to me, we have to have access to the internet. And in fact, one young woman said to me, and it, it has stayed with me all of these years, it's sort of my touchstone. She said to me, why is it that our teachers don't understand when they don't give us access to technology, they're holding back our future? She asked me that question in 2003, and I think to some extent that question is still relevant today for too many classrooms and too many schools across the country. The other thing is, since you've been at this so long, I'm wondering, as you've been researching this, what's changed since the pandemic? So it's been fascinating because we were doing the research before the pandemic. We've done the research during the pandemic when schools were closed. And in fact, we were able to look at the data both before and after school closures and then subsequently. Um, What is most profound to me from that whole experience has been two things. One has to do with parents. So parents had what I refer to as a kitchen table view that they never had before about education and particularly the use of technology. So prior to the pandemic, many parents' only view into their child's education was through a school portal. And it was very much um, quantitative or tactical in the sense of, oh, don't forget that the test is on Monday or don't forget that you have homework and that, or the football game is something that you need to be at. They didn't really understand the learning process, and in particularly how education has changed from the time when they were students. You know, I I love this. Many people talk about this. You know, we're all experts in education because at some point we went to school. So everybody has an opinion, right? So having that kitchen table view for parents was very enlightening for them, and they don't want to go back to not knowing what's happening in their child's education. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that happening, that demand for greater transparency. And also the understanding about the power of technology to personalize the learning process. We've all talked about personalized learning forever. I mean, the the free agent learners are personalizing their learning at the ultimate stage. But parents had the opportunity to actually see what that looked like through remote learning, through virtual learning, and then subsequently. And so I think that's really interesting, that making that personalized learning more tangible to parents, either to get their support or for them to understand what's happening in their child's learning life. I think that's really interesting. The second one, and this one I think is profound, you know, in all the years prior to the pandemic that we had done the data analysis from teachers, People would say to me every year, Julie, what's new in the Speak Up data about teachers? And I sadly would say, not much. 
you know, we were seeing lots of consistency in teachers' attitudes about technology. You know, the ones that were at the ISTE-type conferences are the high flyers, the rock stars. They're doing creative things. But for the most part, teachers were not doing an awful lot with technology. It was uh, maybe used for a substitute for some different activities. It was used as an engagement tool. Oh, yeah, 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 we'll use some technology in this one lesson. It wasn't seamlessly integrated into the teacher's learning life. And some of the other research that we had done told us that until teachers' mindsets change about the value of using technology, it never would become fully integrated. Because if the teacher didn't have a value proposition as to why technology was important, not only for student outcomes, but for their own teacher effectiveness, they wouldn't do the heavy lifting that's really required to integrate technology into existing lessons or to new lessons. They would still use it as sort of a surface layer on top of things. The pandemic changed teachers' attitudes. We're only starting to see some changes in practice but it changed teachers' attitudes because the abrupt shift to having technology be the delivery platform for instruction opened so many people's eyes to think about technology as more than just a sporadic activity we do maybe once a week or maybe we pull in this primary source because it's a good thing to do within that lesson. But to really start thinking about how technology could move forward in terms of notably increasing their own effectiveness because when we get to changing mindsets then we can start changing behavior and the truth of the matter was prior to the pandemic we were seeing no changes in teachers mindsets around the value of technology the importance of it the prioritization of it the demand for changing their practices was simply not there well, thank you so much. This is that's a, a great note to end on. And thank you for spending the time with us and sharing your findings. Thanks so much. This was fun. This has been the Ed Surge podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you like the show, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And for extra credit, leave a rating or a review. And that really helps others find the show. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Music this episode by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.